Hello, beautiful people of podcast land. Welcome back. Today's guest is Dr. Joanna Ward, who has come on today to discuss life's longevity, human resilience, and what we can do to have a healthier life for longer. We touch on her previous book, Superfoods to Super Health, which leads perfectly into what Dr. Joe is working on at the moment, which is her second book all about anti-aging and how we can increase our lifespan. Expect to learn how long we could potentially live for, what we can do to extend our lifespan, what healthy actually means, what to avoid, what to focus on, the risks of obesity, busting the myths on certain foods, the issue with the work from home movement, the reality of the world we live in today, sustainability, and lots, lots more. Dr. Joe brings a really humble approach to this topic. Being a mum, a doctor, and a health advocate, she speaks from the heart and really helps you to understand the roots that we're all currently on and the challenges we face if we don't change. This episode is packed full of nutritious knowledge bombs and super valuable insights. In other news, this episode of the podcast is sponsored by Bean Coffee. Every morning, I wake up, pop down to the kitchen, and make myself a freshly ground, single-origin cup of beautiful coffee. The guys at Bean have created some wonderful flavors that range from citrus notes to chocolate to vanilla, and even some blueberry scents in there too. I have been drinking this coffee for almost a year now, and I absolutely love it. The subscription service gets you either weekly, fortnightly, or monthly orders, and it all comes through the post box. So if you're interested in getting a monthly subscription of amazing coffee, listeners of the show can get 10% off everything online with the code JACK10. So just head over to www.beancoffee.co.uk and make your mornings that much better. <sighs> right. Now, it's time to zone in on health, longevity, and anti-aging with Dr. Joanna Ward. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Jack Ravel Show. Today, I'm very, very pleased to bring on my friend, uh, Dr. Joanna Ward. She is here today to talk about longevity, health, and kind of like resilience, really, in, in, in our bodies moving forward. Um, you know, I think this is extremely timely considering the situation we are in at the moment in the world. And Joe and I have spoken over the years and have been in touch over the years and, and have agreed over the years that we need to be a lot more aware of how we're looking after our health long term, not just in the short term. I think everybody is quite keen to jump on fad diets and you know things that they see in Cosmo magazine and everything else. But I think overall, we need to be looking at what we're going to be doing all the time consistently for the rest of our lives to be able to actually see it through. So Joanna, welcome to the show. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure. So tell me, what are you, what are you working on at the moment? What's, what's going on in your world? Well, lots of things. Obviously, we're all coping with COVID and that's kind of fundamentally shift the way we live, work, rest, play, all of those things. Um, I'm currently researching my second book on longevity 
Um, my first book was all about superfoods. It's called Superfoods for Super Health. So it was all about kind of diet and lifestyle. And I'm sure we'll talk about that a bit. But the second book is all about kind of anti-aging and longevity and how we can try and improve our health span and our lifespan. So it's exciting. Um, as I'm researching, we are kind of realizing very profoundly that the ceiling of human existence has just lifted. We don't know how long it's possible for humans to live. And there's a lot of excitement uh, in that. Um, obviously, in many ways, we are our own worst enemies because a lot of us um, live quite toxic kind of lifestyles. We have, uh, you know, diet and uh, lifestyle changes that we all really need to address. You know, diet and, and lifestyle are some really big things that some of us are doing really quite wrong. And actually, when you bring it all back to the COVID pandemic and what we're all facing collectively and globally... What we know is that you need to be healthy right now and you need to have immune resilience. And the comorbidities for things like COVID are the very same things that are putting us all in a premature grave. These are the things that are killing us in the West, uh, heart disease, diabetes, obesity, dementia, stroke. You know, the, these are the things, these are the chronic diseases that are often related to poor diet and sedentary lifestyles that are making us uh, currently much more risk of COVID uh, severity. Uh, but also these are the things that are cutting short human lives. And these are the things that as doctors, we see every single day at play, you know, obesity, and then that, that, that cycle. So what we notice in societies is when societies leave their traditional way of eating, and living and become more and more industrialized and processed and westernized. There is a pattern that happens over and over again in terms of chronic disease. First people become overweight and then we have obesity, then diabetes, then heart disease, stroke and cancer. And it happens so much that we've actually coined the term Western diseases. These are chronic diseases to do with diet and lifestyle that are, um, as I said, putting us in a premature grave. So we've really got to bust this 20th century myth that we can eat whatever we want, reverse it with a few blood pressure pills, um, uh, ignore the fact that we've engineered exercise out of our lives and become incredibly sedentary. So these are the big things that all of us need to work on if we do want to live a long time, but also live with quality years, you know. Um, it's not just enough to live till 80 if at 60 you become demented and you no longer know who you are or who your relatives are. That's not quality. So the second book is researching about how we can live long lives, but fulfilled lives, happy lives, lives full of quality and love and abundance and, you know, lives that we actually want to be living. So it's it's really exciting. It sounds really exciting. And so why is this important to you? Why suddenly the interest in that, you know, your first book was all about superfoods and super health and, and kind of, you know, living, mm. I suppose, right now and what you can do right now to make yourself mm. better. What's yeah. then shifted your thinking to, to the more longevity side of things? Well, actually, I guess as a parent, you always think, uh, you know, gosh, I have these three beautiful children, which I do. And I think, gosh, you know, I've really got to invest in making sure that I'm around. I feel a huge responsibility to my children to make sure that I'm around. So I always say to them, mommy's going to live to 100. And, you know, I'm always 
interested in the science around, you know, how do I get there? How do I do that? How do I make sure my family members have good quality lives? I'm a doctor. So how can I help my patients live quality lives and improve their health span and lifespan? Because these are the things that we're teaching people every single day. When people come to us and they have problems with their blood pressure and, you know, um, problems with their weight and things like that, a lot of people actively want to make change. And when they're ready, it's really exciting because that's where I can really make some really amazing, um, you know, results. We can set personal goals for people. And um, it's amazing, you know, studies have shown that a lot of doctors only spend about one minute or less than one minute in a consultation talking about the importance of diet, for example. But diet is so important. Every single day, three or four times a day, your breakfast, your lunch, and your dinner, you are making choices about what you put inside your body, which becomes the building blocks of your body. It's your cellular fuel. So you want to be making choices that are premium. You want to be eating premium foods so that you're running on premium fuel. So it's really important that doctors learn more about nutrition and educate themselves because we know a lot about pharmaceutics, right? And drugs and drug interactions. We learn copious amounts about pharmaceutics and pharmacology and drug interactions at university. What we didn't learn very much about in hindsight, um, you know, a wasted opportunity was diet, nutrition, and the profound impact that improving your diet and nutrition can have on your health and lifespan. So actually, it's all linked back to my first book, this, this, this desire to understand more about longevity, but also the science is changing. So um, it's quite amazing. A lot of scientists now believe that we, we actually, you know, we have never even thought to question, do humans have to age? Um, and we've accepted that aging is just a part of getting old. But actually, there's a new um, there's a new way of looking at things. Was actually is saying, well, actually, aging is just another kind of disease process. It's that we're actually we didn't realise that it's caused by you know inflammation, free radicals, and toxin and carcinogen exposure and things like that. And actually, we have control over it. We can we can prevent a lot of it at least. So um, it's just a really interesting area of science and um, it has personal, obviously, uh, I have a personal vested interest in trying to learn how to live a long life. Um, and I guess that's why I got into it. Fantastic. I, I, it sounds a little bit like it's going back to basics. You mentioned at university, you learned all about these super complicated pharmaceutical drugs and things that can, you know, cure your life and all the rest of it. But actually what you're, what it sounds like you're saying is that actually we just need to go back to basics of eating the right foods for the right, for the right type of person you are. And, and then that will create the, you know, the, the, the cellular makeup that will create your, your life in, in a, in a long term. So what, what's the problem that people are facing? If they know that it's as simple as going to the supermarket and buying the right foods, why aren't we doing it? Good question. So I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that we're all incredibly busy. Convenience, long shelf life foods, I call them kind of gas station foods. They were created to help us because we were so time poor. You know, I think so many people are under so much kind of micro stress every single day. You know, I always say that like adulting is an extreme sport. You have to go to work for 10 hours a day, come home, feed the kids, try and exercise. That's a 14 hour day. It's a bit like trying to you know, run a marathon all the time. We're like this. We're constantly juggling and we are 24-7. We've got overflowing inboxes. We are inundated with data, with information and with responsibility and chores and jobs. 
So the problem is a lot of us can't switch off and we need convenience. And that's where convenience food has come into it is that it, none of us did a, a deal with our lazy selves and none of us want to tip into any kind of toxic quicksand with our lifestyle and diet. But it happens so slowly and it's so easy to grab a microwave meal, to go and get a takeout, to, to go to the supermarket and just buy these kind of long shelf life foods, to not have time to cook from scratch is another thing. So it's kind of like an accidental thing that we've all fallen into. Um, and then if you look at our youth, you know, they think Subway and Starbucks is normal. You know, a lot of young people now don't, um, you know, I mean, the statistics are dreadful, actually. The World Health Organization looked at British teenagers and they eat less than one portion of fruit or vegetable a day, a lot of them. So the vast majority are going to be very, very low in their micronutrients because the thing is about these supermarket kind of convenience foods is they're often nutrient depleted. So I always say to my patients, like, right, rule number one, eat more from the soil and less from a box. We've got to start eating real foods because so much of food has become adulterated and changed. And you only get a long shelf life by adding chemicals, preservatives. Uh, often these foods have super added sugar spray added salt, uh, unhealthy fats. And if you look at those kinds of things, they don't serve us beneficially in any way. In fact, they take away from us, you know, all of these chemicals that we've introduced into our food chain and pesticides and things like that, they're actually really damaging. So it didn't happen by us being lazy. It's just that convenience happens. And when we're all so busy, often spending an hour and a half every evening cooking from scratch is difficult, right? Absolutely. There I is think a movement, there's awareness. People are starting to understand that we've got to eat more plant-centered foods and cut out certain things. But, you know, even with the best, best intentions and even when you're incredibly health-motivated, it can be hard. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a big uh, question around the price as well. I think a lot of people have this um, idea that eating healthy is expensive. And I think that's because in supermarkets, everything that's organic is usually more expensive. Everything that's uh, out of the box, so to speak, is usually more expensive. But it doesn't necessarily have to be like that. I think that's more marketing and the branding of something. You know, um, I, I go to the shops all the time and, and look for sort of a cheaper alternative to the same thing that I want. And yeah. it's amazing actually how much, if you look a little bit deeper, you can find the same product you're looking for just in a cheaper way. So if someone was going to go to the supermarket and, and wants to sort of eat healthier, what are the kind of rules that you would go by? You mentioned before, no less, less box, more soil. What other things that could mm. people use as a as sort of a guideline? Yeah, well, I always say like primitive man didn't run through the supermarket grabbing Fruit Loops and, you know, crunching up cornflakes. So what I would do is look at your breakfast, lunch, and dinner, your three main meals of the day. Now, a lot of people will start with, for example, cereal. Commercial cereals are about 30 to 40% sugar. Not a great way to start the day. You get a massive sugar hit and then you get a crash. So Looking at that one meal, you could say, well, what could I do? So instead of that, I'm going to have a smoothie. So if you have a smoothie, you can take all these amazing fresh ingredients. You can blend them together, add a plant milk, um, you know, like an oat milk or an almond milk or something. You can get kale, avocado, banana, berries, um, some cinnamon. You know, you can put lots and lots and lots of micronutrients into one 
single meal breakfast and that flood your cells with antioxidants, polyphenols, all of these vital, vital um, chemicals that calm inflammation that are you know vitamins and minerals as well that help your body build resilience so then we could look at lunch well what could i do for lunch it's really easy well actually soup's a great one you can make yourself um, a bowl of soup i wouldn't buy commercial because they're full of um uh, salt sadly so if you make it from scratch that's the only way that you take back your own power and you take you know you don't delegate the food industry to feed you so i say you know do it yourself so either a lovely green salad with lots of um, vegetables or a soup and on the soup you can just sprinkle some ground flaxseed um, some pumpkin seeds you know seeds some uh, grounded walnuts you know all of those things because these are all superfoods so the more things that you can get into your meal and switches the better and unfortunately supermarkets are great at selling really long shelf life food food that doesn't really degrade over time but that kind of food, there's a few exceptions, but that kind of food is not particularly beneficial. So sometimes it means going out to the shop maybe twice a week to get your fresh fruit and veg because they are perishable. Um, and looking for the bargains, looking for things that, you know, you're going to use in the next few days. Dinner, again, I always say to everybody, you know, have a look at your dinner and try and change. And my motto always is, you know, if you don't want to eat something, don't bring it into the house. If you don't want your kids to eat it, don't bring it into the house. That's the first change. Um, dinner, bed of greens, um, you know, anti-inflammatory foods for uh, preventing heart disease. These are very, very good for your brain, for Alzheimer's. We've got a massive problem with dementia in our society now. So just thinking about food as you know, a means of preserving your health and investing in your long term rather than a quick fix always of just, I'm going to eat this and then I won't be hungry. I try and do that. And I try and teach my patients to make these just these small little meal swaps. I mean, most of us probably only have about 12, 14 recipes that we rely on all the time, right? Get yourself some really great, healthy recipes that the whole family like and, you know, and use them. It's, it is about kind of, teaching yourself in a way to cook new meals that are healthier and to shop in a different way, but it is possible. And actually it may buy you 20 years back of your life. And who doesn't want that? You know, that's huge. It's the consistency. I think that uh, people forget, you know, I, 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 I'm cold my hand up and say that I'm one of those people who have done probably every diet under the sun over the years and they work for a bit. Of course, they, you see results because your body changes along the way but they don't last because they they just aren't sustainable. You know, whether it's eating uh, a low calorie diet or eating only two times a week or whatever it might be that's that's going on. So I think when people think about the consistency of, of what works, I think that's the most important thing. And then what you were saying there about how if you just get into the habit of going to the shops twice a week, getting fresh stuff and making, I mean, things like soup and, you know, smoothies, you can, you can make big batches of them and then keep them yeah. in, in the fridge yeah. or the freezer. And, and, you know, it's, it's something that you don't have to do every single day. Um, but what are the, what are the main food groups or foods that, that people could be upping right now with COVID that's so, so, uh, so rife in, in our society and sort of the things that are very easy to, to bring into the household that people yeah. can start, uh, adapting. Sure. So, I mean, the main thing is um, most Westerners are not in macros. So people have this obsession with macros, fats, protein, carbohydrates. Most Westerners aren't deficient in these things, but 
we are deficient in micronutrients. So there's lots and lots. So if you, know, if you break food down to its micronutrients, it's vitamins, minerals, amino acids, those kinds of things. And lots of Westerners are because we've kind of crowded our plates with junk food and not enough nutritionally um, dense food. So I think easy things are, um, you know, so anything that's vitamin and mineral rich. So um, plant-based foods are great. I, I do like to be plant-centered myself. I don't think you have to be exclusive. I don't think you have to be vegan. But I think putting more fruit, vegetables, nuts, seeds back onto your plate can definitely crowd out the junk. I think if you are going to eat meat, then you need to make good choices about where that meat comes from because a lot of commercial meat, sadly, is um, full of antibiotics. A lot of pharma pharmaceutics can be found in meats that are poorly raised. So I think, you know, organic, pasture-raised, grass-fed meats, um, uh, animals that are raised um, cruelty-free, um, you know, and then think of if you are going to eat, you know, beef or poultry, that should be the side, maybe not the main. You know, 10 years ago, we, you know, if you had a steak and chips, you'd have a tiny little salad, a massive steak, a massive portion of chips. We have to change that. That That isn't healthful eating. So the main part should be your green leafy vegetables and your salad. If you're going to have a steak, it needs to be the, the side part. And the chips, I would say, just get rid of. French fries are just bad they're inflammatory foods and you know swap it for a sweet sweet potato that you can make into a jacket potato that's rich in antioxidants and phytonutrients and things like that so actually it's just it's knowing what to do it's having some guidance and it's keeping it simple because we are all busy um, I don't think we need to overcomplicate it but plant plant scented is always I think a a really good way to be you mentioned at the beginning about the biggest suppose killers or diseases that are really affecting the western world you know with mm. obesity and heart disease and that sort of thing mm. why does it take for somebody to come in and see someone like yourself um and for you to tell them hey if you continue the way you're going and whatever that be the lifestyle you're leading the the diet you're you're, you're eating or the exercise that you're not doing that you're not going to live much longer than 10 years you know why does it take having someone like yourself tell them and they can't actually see that themselves, whether that be in their, in their overall fitness health, what they see in the mirror um, and that sort of thing, you know, it, it surely, surely is it a denial thing? Is it something that people kind of just don't understand? What is it that you find is, is the sort of the biggest uh, tipping point for people um, in that position? I think it's a, a very complex mix of many different things. It's not, it's not just that people come to the doctor and they have a, a light bulb moment. Often they don't. We, I mean, when I see patients, I tell them repeatedly over and over again, the same diet and lifestyle advice. Often they just ignore it. Okay, doc. <laughs> you know, sometimes it gets through and that's when it's amazing. But I think it's a socioeconomic, it's behavioral, it's societal. It's, um, it's just the fact that, you know, these actually it's much harder to be healthy than it is to be unhealthy. You know, those of us that are health motivated have to really stand strong against the temptations of the supermarket aisle that's just got so many ultra processed foods in. You know, the, the fruit and vegetable aisle is only about one or two aisles of an enormous 24 aisle supermarket, right? So the whole environment has changed. If you go to hospitals, I used to work in a hospital when I was a junior doctor, there was a Burger King on site. 
Um, you know, these are fundamental um, paradoxes that don't work. If we made healthy food more available, I think people would learn that I can make that choice and it's easy. I think so much fast food has been unhealthy. And what we're not realizing is that people do do need some help with convenience, but we could make some healthy stores, you know, like Leon is partly uh, trying to do that, where it has lots of green leafy salads available at a fast counter and fresh ingredients. So I think we're partly there. The environment is very difficult. I think the other thing is like, if we look at obesity, Obesity is um, it's something that runs in families because behaviors run in families and um, sedentary lifestyles often run in families. And, um, you know, children will model and copy often what their parents do. So actually, we need to teach children in, in school about healthy eating. We need as parents to be setting the example and living clean and green and healthy, active um, lives. So a lot of it has to start with complete re-education of our system. And I think even the medical system, you know, uh, being part of it myself, I can see the, the places we've gone wrong. You know, we've often found it easier to say, okay, well, I'll give you this statin or this blood pressure medication because um, at least we know then that the patient might take it. So our patients are much more inclined to take a tablet often than they are to go out and change their whole diet and lifestyle because it's hard. It's hard. And it takes world and yes it's probably easier to do nothing to carry on in your your old ways but actually if you think about earning back those extra 20 life 20 years of your life that's very empowering you know and I often say this to patients well let's imagine that we don't get on top of this problem let's imagine that your life is cut short by 15 20 years what are you going to miss out on you know it's your children aren't going to have a parent to be there at the weddings, at the christenings, you are going to miss out on all of your retirement plans if you end up in a premature grave because you've chosen not to do something. And I always say to them, it's hard. I know it's hard. I have to work really hard at my health. I could easily be a size 16 if I let myself, but I don't because I choose and I make choices every day and I'm having a constant dialogue with myself saying, no, you you want to be healthy. You want to feel great. You want to be vital. You want to live a happy life and you want those extra 20 years, right? So it's, um, it's complex. Yeah, it absolutely is. I think it comes down to a, a need and a want and a motivation because I've been plant-based now for about a year and a half. And the reason I went plant-based originally was because of fitness reasons. I wanted to see if I could change the way that my body works when I was training for a marathon. And I, I hated it to begin with because it was, it was painful. Like I had stomach aches and I had, I was eating way too much fiber and I wasn't really understanding how much kind of I had to substitute out for the meat that I was obviously needing to the protein I was replacing. But actually, over time, I found that it's it's become an easier way of, of, of living, living in a plant-based world, because people think it's like, I, I get this question all the time, what do you put on your plate? And it's so funny, because I'm like, well, if you look at a supermarket, right, and, and, and go into any, any Tesco's and ask yourself, right, how many different types of protein, meat proteins could you, could you find? You could probably list 10, right? Then mm. if you list how many fruits and vegetables could you find? You could list 50 plus. 
So then you wonder, like, how do people get their head around, like, not being able to put fruit and veg on a plate versus having meat? And I think you said, as you said yourself, it's a generational thing. It's, it's a society thing. We've been brought up through the, the, the years of seeing our parents have meat as the main meal and then everything else surrounding it. And I think that, as you mentioned, it's about creating the environment for people to be able to learn from. So, you know, it's, it's not just doing what your parents did or what your grandparents did. It's doing what you want to do. And, you know, I live in a household where we don't have any meat in the house at all. And I, I don't even think about it. It's so weird. It's almost so foreign. Whenever I see meat on the table, I'm like, oh, oh yeah, that's what that is. You know, and it's just, it's just your environment you, 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 you're in. So your kids, your family are all plant-based and, and all, you know, all, all absolutely happy and healthy and, and able to adapt to it. How do they find that with friends at school and when they go to other people's houses and stuff, are they quite, um, uh, open to saying, yeah, no, I don't eat this or I only eat that. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I would say I'm plant centered. Um, the reason why we needed to remove dairy from our diet is that my son is very, very, um, uh, allergic to cow's milk. Um, so he had very severe eczema as a child. If he had any cow's milk, he would have diarrhea and things like that. So, I mean, that's easy now because there's so many amazing plant-based milks, right? So oats, almonds, soya, you know, there's so many now. So, I mean, it's infinitely easier making these kinds of choices. And for us, it's just a, a health choice. He, he can't tolerate it. So we've had to find alternatives. But what it makes you think is, gosh, we've been conditioned and kind of not brainwashed, that's too harsh, but we've been told, I mean, Jack, do you remember at school, I had to drink cow's milk because we all had a little, we had break and it was always cow's milk and our parents paid for us to have milk because we were told that if we didn't drink milk, we wouldn't have strong bones and we wouldn't grow. And when you look back at that, you think, gosh, that was really, really clever on, on the part of the dairy industry because they got into schools, they got onto us young. I don't know if anyone ever asked, like, where's the science that shows that? Why is it that, that you're telling us that we have to drink milk when we can get calcium um, from other sources, from green leafy vegetables and things like that? So I think as a society, we've progressed and evolved enormously because we aren't taking those kinds of, um, you know, I mean, that was just the dairy industry uh, telling us that we needed to have milk. So we don't take that as given now. And there are so many plant-based um, alternatives, plant-based choices in restaurants. You know, don't forget, 20 years ago, it was much harder to be, well, definitely a vegan, but even a vegetarian. Your, your, your vegetarian menu options were really quite restricted. Now it's super easy. I mean, we've just got an abundance of choice, haven't we? Anywhere we go. Um, even on, you know, airplanes, absolutely everywhere now caters to vegan, vegetarians, kosher, you know, dairy-free, gluten-free. You know, we, we have a lot of choice now. So now it's easy. And now, I mean, for me, my children, they, they don't really know what they're missing out on, to be honest. Um, they sometimes come home and um, they say, oh, you know, I'm, I might switch from being a vegetarian now, mommy. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, let's talk about that. But then when we talk about the animals, my, my children are always like, oh, I'm not sure I could eat the animals, actually. So, um, you know, I haven't ever forced them to, um, you know, follow my thinking. I'm just leading by example. Um, I wouldn't have an issue if they said to me, oh, mommy, could I have this meal that's, you know, that's maybe got chicken in and things like that. I just choose for myself. I don't need it anymore. I've made those choices based on environmental health and kind of um, wanting to be compassionate to animals. But it's not, you know, it's not um, 
you know, I, I don't think it's compulsory for my kids. I want to, them to feel and find their own way in it. We just have very little as a household in terms of any kind of dairy because of my son, but me, I mean, my husband doesn't really eat meat anymore. Having said that, if you're going to be um, vegetarian or vegan, you do need to be a little bit aware of some micronutrients that you need to supplement. So I do always say this, you know, um, things like omega-3, very important for brain health, particularly given that we've got huge issues with dementia. So often uh, vegetarians and vegans miss out on omega-3 because the vegetarian sources aren't quite as active and bioavailable in your body. So I do um, supplement omega-3. You can get that in algal oil um, because that's what the fish eat in the first place. The fish are the kind of middlemen in the whole omega-3. Omega-3 is very important. It's a powerful anti-inflammatory. So I do think you need to be aware of that. B12, very important. Um, it's almost a, a universal supplement, actually, because even people who eat meat can be low in B12. Um, we have farmed and soiled a lot of nutrients out of our um, soil now. So I think zinc, very important. Magnesium, lots of people low in that. And that's whether you're a, a meat eater or not. I would say get make sure you're getting those micronutrients and supplement if you've got any deficiencies. So there are a few things that you need to be aware of. And I think it's very important to be well-researched if you're going to be particularly vegan, if you're really going to restrict down that much. But you can do it in a very healthy way. And actually, you'll, um, you know, we know that cancer rates are significantly reduced in, in vegans and vegetarians. We know that most vegans and vegetarians have lower BMIs, which is very, very good. You know, not being overweight is massively important because let's face it, fat is inflammatory. It takes you into a pro-inflammatory state. Um, being obese, for example, is the second biggest risk factor now for cancer after smoking. So, um, you know, it's got a lot of health benefits. So how do we connect human health and planetary health? Because a lot of what you just said there relates to the planet and obviously the, the fruit and vegetables that we grow and even the meat that we, we consume from the animals, they are you know reliant on the planet. So there is a link, I suppose, between what the planet's doing, global warming, kind of looking after what's going on you know, around us as well as what we eat. So what is the link there? What are the things that, that, that we can do to, yeah. to help that? Great question. Well, I address this a lot in my first book, Superfoods to Superhealth, because that, that book was all about trying to find um, a healthy uh, diet for humans and a, a, um, a diet for all of us, given that there's soon going to be 10 billion people on the planet. By 2050, it's thought there's going to be 10 billion of us up from 7.9 currently. Now, if we have 10 billion people on the planet, the question of which diet that we're all eating becomes fiercely important. This matters. There are so many of us now. So um, plant-centered diets are evidentially um, the most planet-healthy diets. There's been lots and lots of research. What we're not saying is that everyone has to be vegan. What we're saying is that if everyone could reduce the amount of meat and fish they consume, we can make some big strides in terms of planetary long-term survival, global warming, um, and also making sure that all of those people in countries that aren't as fortunate as Western um, in the Western world, you know, developing countries get their fair share because 
we do have enough resources to feed the whole planet. But what we don't have is enough for everybody to eat meat. So, you know, something has to give. If we all make small changes, we can massively impact um, on, on what's being done at the planetary level, you know, and that has to take international coordination as well. What happens in, um, in so many cases is that we have so much grain and then we feed it all to the animals that then feed a very few people some slices of beef, you know, and that's hugely um, wasteful. So we need to look at what's going on in the world. We need to adjust our diets and raise awareness, really, um, about that. I mean, we've totally overfished the oceans. You know, we really have. Like right now, we shouldn't be eating fish because the oceans aren't going to survive. We are so wasteful. Um, there's so much um, overcatch that's kind of, these are the fish that have died just as, as kind of indirectly because of the fishing trade that's just wasted. You know, so at the moment, our, our seas need to rest. You know, what people need to understand is that the you know, our land, soil, earth, it's all connected. There is no way of of ignoring the massive issue of planetary survival. You know, we are seconds from midnight and what we do now and the choices we make as individuals becomes a collective is really, really Im profoundly important. It's never been more important to, um, to make change. It's, it's scary when you give us those numbers, you know, the 10 million, 10 billion, sorry, billion, people buy... Billion. <laughs> 10 billion people by 2050 and that that will roll around quicker than we know it, it's how do we how do we make those changes in small amounts now because they will compound over time and i think as, as, as you've mentioned we can eat better foods we can make better choices but what do you think is the main thing that needs to change in everyone's uh, lives for that to become something that we can sustain ongoing and, and create for the future mm. Well, I think we all have to make choices every day that are governed by sustainability. So um, it's not just dietary because that is important and that is a massive one. But we have things like fast fashion, big problem. You know, we're so disposable in our society. If something breaks or doesn't work, you know, clothing, we don't sew it back up again. We just ditch it. You know, electronics, we've got a huge disposable electronics. You know, the new iPhone's out, the next one's, you know, the old one's gone. You know, we're kind of a really disposable consumer society, particularly in the West. And I think we have to adjust those behaviors and realize that this, this constant consumption is um, not going to serve our grandchildren who are going to inherit this planet in a very difficult state in any beneficial way. So I think, you know, vegetable patches, um, plant centered is great. I'm not saying you have to go vegan and you eat no meat. That's not what we're saying, but small adjustments like meat free Mondays, you know, if we just reduced it from seven days a week to twice a week, even that would help. Some people will want to go all the way and that's great too. Reducing our consumption of fashion, you know, um, that's a big one. Fast fashion is a massive polluter. Um, letting the oceans rest, letting the oceans breathe. We rely on the oceans for our entire ecosystem. If it goes into dysfunction, we are in trouble. Um, you know, looking at ways to reduce energy, looking at cars, travel, transport. I mean, COVID has taught us that we don't need to fly around the world to do all these meetings, right? So, 
people used to just, you know, plenty of people would get on a, a plane and commute to places like New York from London for work, but so much now can be done virtually. We're very lucky. We have the technology to allow these changes. And I think the mindset has shifted now, right? So it's acceptable that we do meetings like this. And, you know, the the... the the planetary gains will be massive. With the sort of diet and exercise question, I, I kind of, I've always wondered this because people will tell you, no, it's all about your diet. No, it's all about your exercise. No, it's a mixture of the two. You know, it's, it's, it, it, what is, what is your opinion on it? Like what should people be focusing on more if they are going to make the small changes, which do you think is more important? They're both really important, to be honest. Um, very, very important. So diet, uh, as we've already discussed, each meal that you um, you make, each bite that you take, think of it as like determining your future longevity. Exercise really important because actually we have um, engineered exercise out of our daily existence. So um, 100 years ago, uh, people used to get five times the amount of exercise that we do in the UK and the USA. It was just blended into normal life. People walked a lot. They toiled the earth. You know, they looked after the soil. They walked up mountains. People walked more and did a lot more physical labor. Um, a typical office worker now, will be 13 hours sedentary and then if you add your eight hours of being asleep it works out at about 20 to 21 hours of sedentary out of 24 that is a massive massive problem i mean i always look at the children and kids just run around and play and they they expend energy all day long their default is wanting to play and be active if you then look at adults behavior it's totally different we call play having to exercise you know uh, we have to schedule it into our diary because it's so important i mean put it this way if if exercise could be prescribed every single person would be on it that is how profound the health benefits are it reduces inflammation and inflammation is one of the the drivers of of so much of chronic western disease and pathology uh, it reduces your cortisol and your stress levels, exercises therapy. It's good for your cardiovascular system. It releases uh, endorphins and feel-good factors. It releases lots of healthy kind of chemical communicators in your body. It's hugely important. So actually, I think although you can improve your diet, it's not going far enough. You've got to be diet and exercise. That is the the kind of the magic um you know, the magic bullet, so to speak, to longevity and living a, a good life. It's it's both and it's stress and it's sleep and it's all the other things, unfortunately, as well. And it comes, it also comes back to what we were saying before about consistency that, you know, it's not like, oh, I have to now go and run half a marathon because to keep my exercise up. It's, it's just yeah. moving more. And yes. I had a, a previous guest on the, on the show, um, um, Connor, who talked about um, his company, the plant-based games. And he's, he's started this movement of people that kind of really into CrossFit and kind of all into that sort of training, but we're all plant-based. And he he's on a mission to just help people eat less meat and move more. And that's all it really is. It's just moving more. And you, what you mentioned there before, I, I live in London. So for me, I walk everywhere because I don't have a car. It's pointless having a car. And in the summer, I cycle most places. But 
I know friends who live in the suburbs of London who drive to the supermarket and then walk whatever it is, half a mile around the supermarket and then get back in their car and drive home and then sit there for the rest of the day. And they think that that's their outing for the day. They think that that's their exercise. And that's just wrong. Well, humans were made to move and that's the problem. And the thing is, a kind of inertia sets in that tricks your brain to think, I'm not sure I was meant to move that much. You know, and you kind of sink into, it's that toxic kind of mudslide again, of you kind of trick yourself into thinking, well, exercise is an effort and I'll just sit here. And I mean, my definition of a couch potato, and I say this in my book, is someone who doesn't exercise five times a week 30 to 40 minutes. That's a couch potato, not just somebody who's really, really ultra lazy, who barely moves. We have to understand the importance of exercise and how it um, it relates to human health. And it's massive. You know, we have a lot of problems with lower back pain. Um, and a lot of people signed off work because of lower back pain. And, um, you know, it, it taps into your gut health, your brain health, your immune health, everything. Think of it as, you know, just the best investment in your, your health. And yes, it takes effort. It really does. Especially if you've got yourself into a very sedentary place. I find this this so interesting because I've had multiple chats with multiple people over the years about kind of all these different angles that you can look at health and diet and exercise and you know all this stuff. Actually, all it comes back down to is just simply eating the right foods in the right moderation and doing a moderate amount of exercise to keep yourself in a in a, in a movement state. But yeah, it's so difficult to, for people to keep up that consistency. Do you think that there's an element of an element of the social media side of things and, and maybe just media in general that play a part in why people aren't consistent with that simple message? Well, social media has a lot to answer for itself because, you know, if, if some of us added up the hours we spend on it scrolling, they could be hours that we were out exercising. And, you know, scrolling on social media versus investing in your health long term, I mean, I know which one I would choose. We have to be really accountable for how we choose that, to invest our time because time is the only currency we have. It is precious. You know, I, I, I do think that social media can be a power for good. We can, you know, we can put healthy, inspiring messages out there. But so many of us lose hours and hours of time accidentally. They just slip away of our lives because we are on social media and things like that. And so much of social media, I think, in in many ways, so many of my patients say, well, it, it makes me feel like a failure or I'm always comparing. And, you know, I think it's comparison is the thief of joy you know you have to set yourself your own goals your own um, health goals your own personal goals and try not to always be looking over your shoulder at what other people are doing because social media is the worst for that right you will always feel lesser than um, this person or that person and that's rubbish that's no way to live so I think it's about adjusting your mindset dip in and out of social media by all means but don't let it rule you and I think we have a real problem with our youth of today and how much they are involved in social media and you know mental health and anxiety and young people is is a worry because there is so much um that they're always comparing themselves to so um, i mean it does worry me um we'll soon see that generation grow up with probably some very different ideas of what success is you know if if I ask my kids what they want to be in the future they will sometimes say a youtuber and I think oh 
you know, but that's, that is the generation. Things are evolving differently. Um, as long as we put things in social media to positive use, you know, I use my social media to spread health messages. And I know you use your social media to um, motivate and inspire. And that's contagious. And, and that's what I like. And I think that's powerful is when we can get people who are setting really good examples, but not making people feel bad about it along the way. I think that you've hit the nail on the head there. I love what you said there about taking <laughs> when people compare themselves to others, they are stealing or they're, they're losing their joy. They're stealing that joy away from themselves. I think that's brilliant because it's so true. Like I see people get into negative feedback loops all the time when, especially, and I'm talking about sort of my world here in coaching, I have people message me and say, Oh, so like, I've seen this person do this on Instagram. And I'm going to copy it, but it, it, or it hasn't worked in the way I, I thought it would. And I said, well, of course not, because it's not you. You're not that person. That's worked for them. They've got X amount of more experience or different lifestyle or different angle to you. So if you compare yourself to that person, you, of course, you're going to be disappointed. You know, you've got to act the, 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 the way that works works for you. Um, on, on this, I just wanted to ask your opinion on what is your thoughts on keto diets? It's a huge topic that's kind of flying around social media at the moment, especially around sort of in, in women, because there are a lot of people who are not trained as nutritionists, not even trained as personal trainers, not even clued up on anything health-wise, and yet they're selling these keto packages and and supplements that apparently help you lose 10 pounds in 10 days. And it's basically marketing to people who are looking for that quick quick fix what's your opinion yeah. on keto diets um okay so <clears throat> a couple of things first of all there will always be fads diets food propaganda um a lot of it rests on um trying to create a little bit of confusion because if you're confused then you buy into it even more um uh Keto is interesting. I think the, the thing with keto is we don't have a lot of long-term studies um, about what happens to people if they're on keto long, long, long term. We know short term that people can achieve weight loss and things like that. But actually, again, it comes down to social media. People who aren't trained nutritionists, dietitians, et cetera, probably shouldn't be even involved in selling keto diets, packages, supplements. This is this is dangerous and this is in a way commercializing the fact that weight loss sells, you know, um, we all know that um, weight loss is a big problem. So many of us find it very, very difficult to lose weight. And therefore, if you tap into that vulnerability uh, with people, you're likely to sell quite a lot of whether it's your diet book or your keto package or whatever. Keto has got some interesting um success story. So keto was used years ago when trying to help with epilepsy quite successfully, actually. And I think there is quite a lot of research going on in terms of keto and oncology. So cancer is a very interesting one. If you're born after 1960, you've got a one in two chance of getting cancer. I mean, that's just the stats now. It's going to overtake heart disease as the leading cause of death in the Western world soon. We don't know quite when. Heart disease, I believe, is still um, the leading cause of death. I think there's about 18 million people that die every year of heart disease, probably about 9 to 10 million of cancer. So we all need to learn to live lives that are anti-cancer because cancer is something that, you know, if I get diagnosed with a lump, a mass, a tumor or something 
tangible and, and seen on a scan. It likely started five to 25 years ago. So, and a lot of the big research, um, you know, despite billions invested in cancer, we are finding that because it's got such biblical complexity, it's so elusive. It's it's over 200 different diseases that we get from, you know, this uncontrolled rapid growth of cells. That one way uh, that's really interesting now uh, in, in terms of trying to target and understand cancer and treat it and reduce it is why don't we look at how cancer metabolizes? Let's look at what what's different about cancer cells. Why do they get this uncontrolled growth? Now, we know that high sugar diets are, are not great for cancer at all. Um, it's too simple to say that sugar feeds um, cancer growth, but um, there's definitely a link. And, and cancer patients should be on a low sugar diet, um, definitely uh, low ultra processed foods, plant centered grain. I tell all of my patients who've got cancer to to get a nutritionist and a dietitian that's used to oncology patients. I think it's really important. But trying to understand how these cancer cell metabolizes, that's where keto might be interesting. There is some some research going on looking at does um, a keto diet is it is it going to have any impact on cancer cells and I think that might be an area of um, definite future interest for the keto diet I personally don't practice it I um, I like I told you plant-centered. I do a lot of intermittent fasting. I have a window where I eat. Um, I try not to eat between well before 11 or 12 in the day and I won't eat after six o'clock if I can possibly help it. So that's a kind of structured um, way of fasting. Um, every couple of months I do something called Prolon. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's a really good five-day plant-based fast. It um, was designed by Professor Walter Longo um, from, uh, he's an American uh, professor and he is um, amazingly uh, well researched in anti-aging and longevity medicine. So doing these kinds of plant-based fasts um, can really help reset at the cellular level. It is, it is to reduce cancer risk, it's to reduce disease risk, reduce inflammation. So it's a five-day fast. It's calorie restricted. So we know that reducing your calories um, is very important for longevity. So there's an, uh, a lot of new research coming out showing that we all just overeat. We're overnourished in the Western world and undernourished in the developing world. And this overnourishment is really not serving us in any beneficial way. So um, pulling back and eating about 75% of our calories um, is thought to lead to cellular reset to be really good for um, regeneration of our cells and, um, you know, reducing inflammation and pathology. So I, I do that. But, um, yeah, again, we've got to be really careful of these quick fixes because, to be honest, you and I know there is no quick fix. It's a lifetime of, of good food choices, diet, exercise, reducing stress, quality, sleep. You know, it's all of these things that actually um, matter in the very, very long term. With the keto stuff, it's like having a square peg in a round hole. You know, as you said, if you're somebody who is got a certain disease or a certain uh, ailment or something that you maybe need keto to help you with becoming a healthier human, then that's what you could be prescribed by a doctor or a nutritionist, but not by some 
Dolly Bird on Instagram, who basically has become famous because she's an influencer and then just decided to get on the keto mm. bandwagon. That yeah. in itself is just wrong. And I think there's a lot of, of, of a lot of people on Instagram that need to answer for that. But what's really interesting about yeah. the calorie deficit thing you were talking about, um, I have, as I said, gone through quite a few of these kind of different diets and different fads. And I, I train really hard. And um, when I started training for my Ironman a couple of years ago, I found that I was trying to do intermittent fasting as well as train for an Ironman. And it was just impossible because my 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 fitness levels were, were suffering. My fatigue was coming in really, really quick. And what I found was actually, I just needed to find the right foods for me to give me what energy I needed. So I started upping things like oats and sweet potatoes and obviously rices and pastas. And I was having way more vegetables kind of earlier in the day. So, you know, even for breakfast, sometimes I'd have kind of what I had left over from dinner the night before, if I knew I was doing a big training session and just experimenting with different things. Um, one of the guys I train with, he's full plant-based and, and loves it. And he's a, an absolute animal on the bike. You know, he can he's super, mm -hmm. super fast. And what he does is he blends sweet potato, cabbage, you know, anything that he can get that is, is sort of nutrient rich, blends it down. It's almost like baby food and then puts them into these little sachet packets of, I think, 150 or 200 grams. And then he has like five or six of them on him when he's cycling. And he'll measure himself via his sort of HRV and his sort of, you know, his, um, his, his um, heart rate and stuff. And when it drops below a certain level, he'll just have one of these things and test whether it actually gives him the boost of energy he needs to move forward and, and, and to continue with his, with his cycling. And I mean, that's going super scientific, but it just proves that you don't need a magic pill. You just need to eat the right foods for who, you, for what you're doing and your lifestyle to be able to, to be able to be healthy and, and, and move forward. Yeah. And I think the kind of take home message really is um, there are many different healthy ways to eat. The modern Western or the standard American diet is not the healthy way. So it's just about, you know, making few adjustments. You, you know, you've got to find a diet that works for you. And I hate the word diet in a way, because it's, it's kind of, it doesn't really describe it. It's about finding a relationship with food that, you know, is enjoyable, that nourishes you, that fortifies your body. It's your fuel, right? It's got so many functions, you know, it can prevent cancer, it can reduce inflammation in your body, you know, it's so connected to, everything that's going to map out in our future, that it's just finding foods that you enjoy, that you can learn to cook. You know, I had to take myself back in the kitchen and, and relearn some cooking skills because I didn't have a lot of great skills after I left university um, to make the kind of foods that I wanted to be eating myself and um, giving my family. Um, so I worked with a plant-based chef on the book. But I also got Charlotte to um, teach me some great tricks because I'm not a chef and I'm not a cook. But you know what? Vegetables, when they're cooked well, they're amazing. Absolutely. They really I, are. <laughs> I agree. And it, and it sometimes comes down to just seasoning. Simple yes. seasoning can really just transform uh, a dish. Totally. And again, it, what we were saying before, laziness is a big part of it. I think that a lot of people just think, right, I want to have this food because I know what it tastes like and I've had it a million times before. So I'm going to just cook this. But actually you can substitute a lot of very normal standard foods. Like I, I love cooking a chili right? But the chili hasn't got any meat in it. It's full of yeah. beans and, and pulses yeah. and lentils and that sort of, and, and arguably has probably more protein per pound than, than maybe the beef that I would have had in it if I were, when I was eating meat. And I think that's also a common misconception is that a lot of people don't realize that some fruits and vegetables have more protein than some meats. And, you know, it's, it's just that education side of it again. And it's, it's, 
and I know that I follow a few people on Instagram who do the comparison, you know, like they sort of yes. hold, hold up a peanut yeah. butter on, on toast versus like a, a similar sort of weight in steak and go, actually, they're about the same in terms of in terms of protein. And it's things like that. You're like, really? What? Yeah. But actually, when you dive into the science, it is. So with if someone listening to this is, is sort of really intrigued by, okay, I need to up my game. I need to make myself sort of a lot more aware of what I'm eating and how I'm eating. Where are the resources that you would suggest someone could go and could could go and have a look to sort of get them on the right path? Yeah, well, that's why I wrote a book. So my book, Superfoods to Super Health, is sold on Amazon. Um, for me, it's kind of like just it touches on everything. I talk about cancer, heart disease, you know, blood pressure, stroke. I talk about the environment. I try to just take really exciting bits of science and evidence. It's a motivational book as well as being a health book. I'm trying to give people a wake up call and we all need it sometimes, right? You know, it's just that wake up call of, oh my gosh, right, I'm going to change. And that will have a ripple effect throughout my life, all my family and friends. You know, when one person changes, a lot of people do as well. Um, you know, you kind of say to someone, right, I'm doing this and please support me. And then slowly people go, oh, well, that sounds really good. I could probably make those changes too. And I'd like to actually be healthier and fitter and I'll come on that walk with you. I think uh, lockdown has been really good because people have been walking lots and, um, you know, people have been making an effort because they had time because they had time, you know, so what that tells us is we have to make time because if you don't make time, time for health you have to make time for illness later it's that simple i love that so what I'll, I'll link your book in the show notes below so people can find it very easily um if anyone else wants to find out more about you and your work and if they want to get in touch where can they find you joe um well probably the easiest place is instagram so i'm at dr johanna ward um, Johanna, J-O-H-A-N-N-A. Um, I try and put my health um, message across on Instagram and Facebook. Um, but there's lots of amazing resources out there. There really are. I think grab a couple of cookbooks. Um, I think Deliciously Ella's a really good place to start. She's got loads of amazing plant-based recipes if you want to start being more plant-based. Um, and um, the Food Bible is another great one. that the, They've got a great cookbook. So a couple of great cookbooks. There's loads of great apps as well. Um, and yeah, I think any of those things will certainly help. And then part of it is just staying motivated, stay committed to the cause, you know, give yourself three months to make changes because that's how long it takes to get into the habit and for your body to feel better. And then once you're in three months, I'm sure you'll be kind of feeling better and healthier and looking forward to a more vital and healthy future. Amazing. I am super excited about making my lunch now because uh, I'm, I'm motivated yeah. to get all of the all the nutrients and greens in there Joe, this is fun. absolutely yeah it becomes an experiment see what see, see how how much how much you can uh, how much you can make with, with exactly yeah make it make it like a picture um yeah. Joe, this has been amazing. I've, I've really appreciated your time and uh, your, all your knowledge. I, I get fascinated every time I speak to you. You've always got so much to share. And um, yeah, I really appreciate your time. Um, I really wish you best of luck with your book. You must let me know when it's when it's out so we can get back on and we can have a little chat more about, uh, about that. But um, in the meantime, thanks everyone for listening and look forward to seeing you next time. Bye everyone.